Well, good morning to you. Welcome to Christ the King. Y'all, um, we're one sermon away from being finished with our series on Mark, uh, but it's not going to be today. Um, that will be next Sunday, uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and then Advent starts on November the 29th. And I'm going to tell you, in my opinion, Advent cannot come too soon. Uh, we need some Christmas. I mean, Advent's not even Christmas. But, you know, Advent's supposed to be about longing and about, you know, all those. I'm making Advent more about Christmas because lo- we've been longing and aching for, I don't know, the last eight or nine months. Um, and, and even in the Holland household, and I'm going to tell you, I mean, our family's from Mississippi, both Shannon and me, so we don't do this. But we started getting Christmas stuff out of our attic last night uh, and scattering it about, you know, in our house. It's just kind of like, it's time. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, but all of that has kind of reminded me that this has been a really hard eight months. It's been a really hard year. And one of the uh, potential casualties of this year, uh, and one of the things that's really been difficult, has been worship, has been the fact that it's really hard for us um, for church, uh, like Christ the King, that for 23 years that has really been built on what I believe is appropriately the primacy of worship, by necessity uh, and by providential factors, it's been a struggle. Um, It's been a struggle to gather. There are many who can't gather and shouldn't gather. But I want to sort of try to reorient us a little bit uh, at this time to what it is that we're doing in our time of worship. Whether it is you are here uh, in person or whether you are tuning in on our live stream out on the porch at 9 or you know whether you're tuning in uh, at your home, um, we're all knit together in the Spirit, so we're all doing the same thing. But what is it that we're doing? Uh, I want to reorient us to that a little bit by reading these words from Isaiah Uh, Chapter 6, from verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, here we are. We pray that you would renew us this morning with your grace, and send us renewed by your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, as a pastor, one of the things that I have noticed, uh, being a pastor for 
a little over 20 years now, is that weird things happened in my life and continue to happen in my life on Saturday night and Sunday morning. Uh, like people go to the emergency room at 3 o'clock, uh, you know, Saturday night in the Holland House. If somebody's going to get a stomach bug at the Holland House, it's going to be, you know, at 5 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning. You know, all of those kinds of things that I think are little, you know, pricks and prods from the devil that just try to disrupt our vocation and just to try to disrupt our worship. I bet you that in some senses when you think about your life, on Sunday mornings, you can probably think, yeah, that's pretty much chaos time in our house, right? I mean, just imagine that situation. You know, you're trying to get ready for worship. You're trying to get breakfast served. There's no milk. You got to go to the store. Uh, somebody has lost a shoe. And have you ever noticed that nobody ever loses two shoes? People just lose one. I'm not sure how that happens, but people lose one shoe. So you've got one shoe, you don't have the other shoe. Or you're trying to tune into the live stream and you're on your Mac and, you know, you fire it all up and you get the spinning beach ball of death and it's just not working, you know, and people are frustrated. And so in, in, in worship a lot, we tend to kind of, you know, kind of get here a little bit late or we're tuning in late because our Wi-Fi is not working and all those things and everybody's just a little bit on edge, you know, a little bit edgy and, you know... Your, your to-do list automatically that you haven't been thinking about for the rest of the weekend, what happens? Boom. Everything for the week coming starts spinning in your head. Now imagine that that is all happening and then this happens. This building begins to shake and the roof is physically torn off of its moorings of the building. And all of a sudden these burning flaming creatures fly in here and they start flying around. And this bright light that is blinding fills up this whole sanctuary. And you hear these creatures saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you are freaking out and if you're watching you know participating in worship at home your kids are screaming mommy and daddy I thought we were doing worship this morning why is this a movie you know these kinds of things and you fall on your face and you tremble because you're sensing feeling experiencing the glory of the Lord and the next thing you know they fly back up the light fades the roof comes back on and it's quiet in here now my question about that scenario is if that actually ever happened in your life at Christ the King, would you ever lackadaisically come to worship again? Would, you, would, would worship ever be experienced the same way again? Because the truth of the matter is that this is pretty much what we experience every time we gather together for worship. The difference between us and Isaiah is that he experienced it by sight, and we experience it by faith. And if that's true, nothing could be more vital than our worship together. Whether it's gathered here or on the porch or, you know, even live stream, knit together by the Spirit. So the question of that is, why? Why is it so important? Well, we worship God, first of all, because He's worthy of it. And we also worship God because He's gracious. And finally, we worship God because God is a God of mission through his worship. So the word worship simply means assigning ultimate worth to someone or something. It's not that magical of a word. 
And we are called from this passage and from the entire Bible to worship God alone. In other words, we are called to assign to God alone ultimate worth. And that's not just one day a week for one hour, you know, in a time where you are coming to church. This is really a call for our entire lives, wherever we are, whatever it is that we are doing. And with that definition, it's easy to understand that we can actually worship other things, you know. We can worship experiences. We can worship a person. We can worship a leader. We can worship our work. We can worship money. We can worship status. We can worship social standing. If we assign ultimate worth to those things, if that's what we spend the, the, the great bulk of our energy and our time working on, that can be a clue as to what it is that we worship. I mention this because there is an oft-neglected tidbit in Isaiah chapter 6 that I actually want us to focus a little bit of time on, a little bit of an unfamiliar moment in a more familiar passage, and that is how this passage begins. Isaiah says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, what's that all about? Why do we care that this was the year that King Uzziah died? Why would he mention such a, a, a kind of seemingly random historical note? Well, this is important. Uh, whenever you're reading along in the Bible and you see an historical marker like this, it kind of makes you go, why did he say that? You need to stop and think because it's important. Another place that this happens is in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 when he is giving all kinds of historical markers around the birth of Jesus. He says that uh, it was around the time that a census was decreed by Caesar Augustus. And then he kind of has this sort of parenthetical phrase that says, this was the time when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. None of this was even happening in Syria, so why do, why do we care who the governor of Syria was? Well, there's two reasons why authors in, the, uh, in, in writing the Bible will give those historical markers. The first is that they are grounding the event that they are writing in in a historical moment. Much, our, a lot of our cultural religiosity will basically say, you know, it doesn't really matter what actually happened. All that matters is faith. It doesn't matter if the stories in the Bible are true. You can still learn kind of moral lessons from them. It's not true. It does matter. It matters a lot if these things actually happened. And so uh, Luke and also um, Isaiah are grounding this uh, thing, this monumental event in a historical moment. But the second reason that, that authors do this is that they provide important situational context that the event enters into. There's significance to the fact in this passage that this event happened in the year that King Uzziah died. And here's why. Quick little Bible history. When David, who most people I think have heard of simply because of the story of David and Goliath, when David and his son Solomon ruled over Israel, Israel was one united kingdom. But it was not long. It was uh, after Solomon's reign ended that there was a dispute regarding who was going to be the king over Israel. Now, if nothing else, that little tidbit right there ought to provide some historical knowledge that you can go, yeah, I kind of get that right now. You know, there's a little bit of a dispute. And what happened was, is that there was a, uh, a split of that kingdom. 
So that Israel became the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom was a place called Judah. And Judah was governed and ruled over by kings that were out of the lineage of David and Solomon. Uzziah was one of those kings. And Uzziah was the king over Judah for 52 years. And during those 52 years, Judah was at its height of its military power, of its economic power, and its security of its people. There was peace and there was prosperity in the land. People were safe from their enemies. So much so that Uzziah kind of got arrogant about his ability to rule and he thought that he was invincible. And he went into the temple of God and burned unauthorized incense, which A, he wasn't supposed to do because he was a king and not a priest. And B, he wasn't supposed to do because this was not a part of God's directive for worship. And his invincibility put, was, was uh, found to be false because God struck him with leprosy from which he died. Now that's the story. But here's the significance of it. At the death of Uzziah, all of the peace, all of the prosperity, and all of the security of all of the people of Judah was thrown into uncertainty. And there was a great fear of their enemies that surrounded them on every side, attacking them. Great anxiety, great general sense of dread and panic. And it is no accident that Isaiah begins here. Now, I don't want to sound blasphemous at all, but if this passage had been written a few thousand years later instead of where it was, it would not be ridiculous for the writer of this passage to begin this story by saying, in November 2020, dot, dot, dot. Because our situational context here regarding our life of worship is not that much different than the situational context of the people of Judah in the year that King Uzziah died. I mean, think about it. We're continuing to endure a pandemic of which there is some hope of a light at the end of the tunnel, but that light is way out there. It's like a pinprick. We can't, we can't actually grasp it. We are leaning into it, but we don't know when this is going um, to in some ways resolve itself. We're in week three of a disputed presidential election that is, if nothing else, anxiety producing. It just is. And the longer that it goes on, the longer people are kind of getting entrenched in their camps and getting angry and bitter towards the other. If you're a member of Christ the King, you received a letter from me on Wednesday that may produce some level of uncertainty and anxiety. It was not the, uh, the goal, it was not the intention, but it might have that effect in one area of your life. So in November of 2020, like the year that King Uzziah died, we need to be very clear and have a very clear reminder of who and what it is that we are called to worship because everything else is thrown into uncertainty, right? It's not a king or the security and sense of peace that is brought about by a king. It's not a president, either president. It's not a change in your church. It's God alone. Why? Because God alone is worthy of our worship. God alone is worthy of our worship. Every single word of Isaiah chapter 6 testifies to this. Just soak in the imagery of this passage for a few minutes. 
The Lord sits on his throne. It's the seat of ultimate power. There is, at the time that Isaiah wrote this and experienced this, there was actually a king in Judah. It was not like Uzziah died and there was no king. Jotham was the king uh, of Judah. But, what Isaiah, but, but this imagery says that the Lord sits above the throne of Jotham, sits above the throne of any human leader in any time in history. There's no king or ruler that can possibly be greater than the Lord our God. The train of his robe fills the temple. The temple is not small, but it is completely consumed with the glory of the Lord. He is surrounded by these angelic beings that are literally on fire. They are burning ones. Seraphim, which is the plural of the Hebrew word seraph, which means to burn. These creatures were literally burning. There's imagery here biblically of fire being a, a a purifying force, meaning that these beings are without sin. They're holy in their own light. Uh, and they are surrounding the throne of God. And they sing all day and all night constantly of the glory of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is the only time in the Bible that that word is repeated three times. It's like, it's like these burning seraphim have to make something up to express the great and grand glory of God. It's like a super superlative, you know. They had to invent it. And it was a continuous call. That call of holiness. God is worthy of our worship. And that is the first reason that we are called one day in seven, to gather as we are able, in whatever format we are able, to worship Him. You know, one of the longings that I have in this time, um, because of uh, the, 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 our, our uh, requirements in terms of kind of separation and even the mask that we're wearing, the musical ensemble that we have here at Christ the King is just absolutely fantastic. They do an amazing job. But in some senses, um, you know who I really want to hear sing? is not Joe, who I love to hear sing. And, and, and Katie, who is amazing. And Daniel, who is amazing. And Michaela, who is amazing. But you know who I want to hear sing? I want to hear you sing. I want to hear, I want to hear the voices of God's people again rising you know, to a place that begins to lift the roof and, 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 and shake the building. Because that is our call. Worship is a participatory activity and not a spectator activity. And it's not an experience. It is a, it is a call that is driven from the depths of our soul, giving the holiness and the grandeur and the glory of the Lord so that we just can't hold back. That's a longing I have in this season where it's hard for that to actually happen. Uh, but I think this passage causes me to long for it all the more. But here's the thing about God's holiness. It's not just a proposition. It's not just uh, what, what Christians like to call a truth claim, you know, of the Bible. God is holy. That is true. Uh, but actually in this passage, we're driven more not to think about God's holiness in its propositional nature, but in its experiential nature. We're meant to actually feel the holiness of God more than think about the holiness of God in this particular passage because we're actually meant uh, because because Isaiah lays out to us his experience in being in the holiness of God what happens when you 
or find yourself in the white, hot, burning glory of God? Well, two things. First, you sense separation. The seraphim covered their eyes. Think about this for a second. The seraphim cannot look at God on his throne. The seraphim aren't sinners, right? This is not like punishment for them for a life of sin. They're pure, burning creatures that are without sin. Yet they, not even they, can look at God on his throne. That's amazing. You can actually call the seraphim holy, but you can't call the seraphim holy, holy, holy. They can't even look at him. And then the second thing is fear. You know, the fear of God has become pretty unpopular, you know, in the 20th and 21st centuries. We don't really like to talk about it. But the truth is, if you really want to understand why the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is so amazingly wonderful, you have to face the bad news first. And the bad news is expressed by Isaiah in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If they were writing this in, you know, vernacular kind of jargon, I think what Isaiah would have said was, Ah! I'm going to die! That's all he's saying. It's, it's, it's doctored up a little bit for print here, but basically it's, I am a dead man. Because I've seen God, and I'm a sinful man. God is worthy of our worship. The problem from this standpoint is that we come to a point that we stand, that we understand that while he is worthy of worship and holy, we are not. And that proposes a problem, but also God proposes a solution. That leads to our second point. We worship because God is gracious. Imagine this for a second. Imagine if uh, in a worship service at Christ the King, at the end of the service, instead of standing up there and pronouncing God's blessing upon you and sending you out into the world, what if I closed every single service with these words? Actually, what if we put them up on the screens and we all said them together? What if the final word of every worship service were, were these? Woe is me, for I am lost. Go in peace. Right? That wouldn't work, would it? That would, everybody would just kind of shuffle out. And this burden of heaviness, just this burden of, of guilt and this burden of shame. But that is not what God is doing when he calls us into his presence in worship. Because when we come together and gather in worship, what we're doing is we are celebrating the grace of God. Every single time we are in his presence in worship. We celebrate two things particularly. First, a restored relationship to God. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the thing that we continuously forget. That's the thing that he reminds us when we gather together one week in seven because he loves us. The truth of the gospel is this. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone, your sins have been atoned for. You are forgiven, but not only that, you are in a, you are accepted by God and live in a flourishing relationship with him. That's the gospel. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone, your sins have been atoned for, you're forgiven, and you're restored to a flourishing and perfect relationship with God. This is not just New Testament teaching. We don't just see this by reading Romans. It's right here in Isaiah 6. 
Because after Isaiah makes a very true confession, I am a dead man because my eyes have seen God and I'm sinful, God acts. God does something on his own initiative. One of the seraphim take a coal from the altar with tongs, touches Isaiah's lips, and God speaks words of grace. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What's happening there? Well, think about that coal for just a second. Where does it come from? The coal comes from the altar. What's the altar? The altar is the place of sacrifice. Well, what's sacrifice for at the time of Isaiah? Sacrifices for the atoning of the sins of God's people. And so in taking that coal from the altar, God is taking the sacrifice and saying, this sacrifice is efficacious for you, Isaiah. Your sins are forgiven because they have been atoned for. Here's the point. In touching Isaiah's lips with that coal, God is pointing him and us directly to a sacrifice that is not temporary, a sacrifice that is permanent, a sacrifice that is once and for all. It is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, where basically on the cross, Jesus says, behold, my blood has covered you. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Every week in our worship, we celebrate this restored relationship to God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. We speak about it. We sing about it. We teach about it. You know, in in this time, most tangibly, we celebrate it in the sacraments of baptism and communion. Why? Well, we do it because we forget it. God allows us to do it. He actually calls us to do it because he knows that we're going to forget it. And that we as human beings need to be renewed in a weekly rhythm by God himself and his grace. Apart from gathered worship one day in seven, we are left to our own devices to kind of make it or break it as a Christian in this world. A lot of people think they can do it, but they really can't. And it is easy to fall away. And it is easy to get disillusioned. And it is easy to get frustrated. And it is easy to find yourself way, way, way far away from God. You know, this is is one of the effects, I think, uh, that we're going to feel as a church, but also as the church, kind of the larger church uh, in Houston and America, as we kind of at some point emerge from this post-COVID world that we're in. Uh, which is in the unforeseeable future here, is because I think that one of the things that is happening is that people are, generally speaking, not. Uh, it, it is easier now to fall out of the rhythm of worship in our lives. We're going to look up, I think, one day and, 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 and find that we live in a much more de-churched city than we used to live in. Um, and it's going to have consequences It's going to have consequences on the spiritual state of people. It's going to have consequences on the emotional state of people. It's going to have consequences on the deep loneliness of people. It's only going to exacerbate. Um, Where if if we refuse to, well, if we simply kind of fall away from the rhythm that God himself has established of one day out of seven, the people of God 
gathering, and I use gathering loosely here because I know, uh, because I'm not trying to provoke guilt or anything like that. Gathering is defined as coming together in person or in spirit, you know, through the live stream on the porch or in your home to worship God and to be together, if not in person, in the, the, the union of the Holy Spirit because He is gracious to us. Um, and finally, very quickly, I'm just going to touch on the fact that we worship also because God is a God of mission, and He has gone a God of mission through our worship. Mission is the is the um, is where this passage ends in verse eight. God renews Isaiah by His grace. This is the pattern. This pattern of what I'm actually trying to convince you of is the pattern that happens in Isaiah six is the pattern that we repeat in our corporate gathered worship every week. You come into the presence of God, you experience His glory, you go, He's holy, I'm sinful, you confess that. He takes the coal, figure of speaking, He touches your lips, He reminds you of the grace that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He comforts you through His sacrament and teaches you through His Word, and then He sends you out into the world. That's what we do. That's what Isaiah did. Because at the end of this, after renewing Isaiah in the gospel, God says, who is going to go? And Isaiah, in his newly restored relationship to God, raises his hand and said, I'll go. Send me. Send me. That's our pattern of worship. Encountering the glory of God, seeing who it is that we are in light of who God is, experiencing his grace being sent into the world. That's the beauty of the primacy of worship, and that is why it is so vital in our lives, even if it's disrupted in some crazy ways by many crazy providential circumstances. And so we can be the ones like the, the seraphim who call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory through our being sent into the world as God's agents of his redemptive grace. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the renewal that you offer to us through the beauty of worship. We pray that we would grasp it, whether in person or at our homes or some other place in this season that we live in, but that we simply would not allow it um, to be absent from our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.